This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Best of Books series. And we've done a bunch. Some we dedicate an hour to. A.J. Bames, The Arsenal of Democracy. Terrific story about how capitalism in our industry helped save the world in World War II. Terry Teachout's Remarkable Pops, a story of Louis Armstrong. Just tragic, beautiful, sad. And then, of course, Amity Schley's Forgotten Man. Just as good as it gets about the Great Depression and a very different view than one you'd ever heard about the causes of the Great Depression and what got us out. And my personal favorite, Chasing the Last Laugh, How Mark Twain Escaped Death and Disgrace with a Round the World Comedy Tour, and that was Richard Zacks. He was just terrific. Our favorite book, the one that we dedicated an hour-by-hour approach to, and it was a 10-part series, was Greg Ipp's Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous, and how danger makes us safe. And he's the Wall Street Journal economics editor and just terrific storytelling about everything in life, particularly child-rearing, which, oddly enough, we talked a lot about in that book. And today we begin our feature on a book we're going to do chapter by chapter. And again, we've only done that with one other book in our Best of Books series, The Rule of Nobody, Saving America from Dead Laws and Broken Government, and it's by Philip Howard, an accidental government reformer who's earned the respect of both sides of the political aisle, ranging from the liberal John Stewart to the conservative George Will. And he's worked alongside Democrats like Al Gore and Bill Bradley and advised Republicans like Jeb Bush and Mitch Daniels. He's the founder of Common Good, a nonpartisan national coalition dedicated to restoring common sense to America, particularly our laws and regulations. And our own Alex Cortez is bringing us these conversations with Philip. Take it away, Alex. Tell us how you, this boy from eastern Kentucky and the son of a Presbyterian minister, ended up spending your career on fixing government. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, they're not that far apart. Um, back in the old days, ministers considered themselves servants of the community as well as religious leaders and got involved in you know, local issues, you know, in dealing with the poor and other you know, public needs. So <clears throat> public policy is not that far removed from at least that concept of the ministry. And when I was growing up, I certainly didn't want to be a minister, uh, having seen it too closely. <laughs> so being a government reformer was another way to serve that community in perhaps a more powerful way than serving in government, at least under the current rules, the rule of nobody. The actual progression was that while I was interested in public policy, I also identified early on that most government jobs were not that interesting, that you ended up being like on an assembly line or something with, you know, weren't given real responsibility. So I ended up going to law school and becoming a lawyer in a law firm. And in order to do something related to public policy, I became interested in civic work. And, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was chair of the zoning board in East Midtown Manhattan, for example. And then from that, I became active in some prominent civic groups, one called the Municipal Arts Society. Jackie Onassis was on the board, uh, you know, the one that led the charge to save Grand Central. And so I became an officer and then chairman of that for several decades. And it was about a decade into that that... (laughs) I began to wonder why my friends who had, at this point, important positions in, in, in city government 
couldn't do what they thought was right, you know, and I'd have discussions with them, and they'd say, of course you're right, but we can't do it because of this rule or that rule or that procedure. So I just began looking into why it is that people who supposedly had important responsibilities couldn't actually act on their best judgment and use their common sense. Seeing this story play out inspired Philip to get the real education that he should have already had. And that led me to first start reading books I should have read in school but never did, like Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty and Aristotle and other things. And then I effectively hired a tutor who was an intellectual historian, Ph.D. candidate out at Claremont in California, who was the brother of a friend. And he would give me reading assignments, and then we would spend hours on the phone together thinking about basically the relationship between public choices and human responsibility and things like that. Just the last point you made is fascinating, too, of, you know, you're not in school and you're going through these books with a friend. And and just speak on, you know, what that says about our education system that we're stuck in such a box, but don't include what you were doing with your friend as part of our education. Yeah, and I went to the best school. So, you know, I was a full scholarship student at a very good boarding school, Taft School in Connecticut, sort of the scholarship kit from Appalachia, and then went to Yale and, you know, which is a great school. And and I learned a lot in those schools, but I will say that that schools, even at that point, we're talking about the 1960s now, they weren't really trying to teach students about the kind of first principles of social organization and democratic governance. One of the many problems with the American system of schooling is that it's become disconnected from sort of core values. You know, they think education is just kind of a version of learning, you know, facts and history and how calculus works and not really sort of more fundamental issues of right and wrong and sort of the role of human agency and not only in government, but in but really in all social interaction. These are big fundamental questions about the nature of man, of government and who is best positioned to make decisions. And Philip's right, you won't learn about them, and definitely not well at almost every school. I certainly didn't at my alma mater, the University of Virginia, which, like Phillips, is considered one of the top schools. And heck, it was even founded by one of our nation's founders, Thomas Jefferson. But it is far from these schools as minds. That is, unless you went to Hillsdale College, or you take their free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And yes, that was just a shameless plug for our favorite sponsor, but also a very true statement about our favorite school. And when we come back, more of Alex's conversation with Philip Howard, his new book, The Rule of Nobody, and one of the rare books where we spend hours and hours and chapter by chapter rather than one hour for the whole book. More with Alex and Philip Howard after these commercial messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to our Best of the Books series. And today's book is The Rule of Nobody, Saving America from Dead Laws and Broken Government. And let's now return to our own Alex Cortez's conversation with its author, Philip Howard. Tell me uh, the story of the winter storm in Franklin Township, New Jersey, and it was February of 2011. Yeah, it's really amazing. So a storm hits this little town, and a tree falls on the creek, and it's causing flooding. And so the town supervisor sends in a backhoe to pull out the tree to stop the flooding, and the lawyer tells him he can't do it because there's a rule that says you can't remove a natural object from a Class C-1 creek, which I guess whatever that is, without getting a permit. And so it's the classic case of overly precise rules. They never account for the circumstances. So <laughs> this was a natural object that happened to have just fallen in you know, the day before. So it took them 10 days and $12,000 in legal fees to get the permit. <laughs> so the flooding continued and presumably eventually dissipated. But it's just a classic case when you look to a rule book to find an answer. The smart management theorists, people like Peter Drucker, basically said that 90% of all choices to sort of make sense of any situation occur on the ground, right at the spot. You know, well, how exactly are you going to fill up this hole or how? You know, do you really need to pull the tree out now? And the circumstances are always different. And you can't have a thousand page or even a hundred thousand page rule book that will make sense of that situation. It's not so dangerous to try to let people actually <laughs> use their judgment in deciding what to do. So you can imagine a general principle that says you can't alter the basic conditions of a creek of a certain sort uh, without getting a permit uh, that would leave room for officials to take care of immediate situations without getting a permit. So this would just happen to be a tree that just fell in. They're not trying to dredge it or <laughs> dig a new course for the creek or turn it into a waste treatment <laughs> system or something. So you can Law can pretty effectively provide general principles, but it will always fail and drive people nuts if it tells you exactly how to do things. You have a great quote in the book saying, government's ineptitude is not news, but something else has happened in the last few decades. Government is making America inept. It's, uh, it's rendering us all inept. Can you expand upon that? Yeah, it's not letting people use their judgment. So it's not only that that government will make clunky decisions from time to time in what it's doing, it actually prevents citizens and officials alike from using their common sense. So it's tried to preempt the field of choices. So law traditionally has been a concept of outer boundaries, uh, of basically a negative concept. You can't cheat people, you can't steal someone else's money, uh, you can't pollute the stream, that sort of thing. And within those boundaries, people are free. And so the reason law supports a free society is because you can go through the day not being unduly defensive about somebody about to you know, rob you or, <laughs> or break the contract. What's happened really just in the last five decades is that 
we got the idea that law shouldn't be outer boundaries. Law should actually tell people how to do things properly, should tell a teacher how to teach a classroom, and tell a doctor exactly how to deal with a patient. Law's gone from the limits for us to the instructions to us, from the rule of man to the rule of nobody. Man no longer has the freedom to exercise his judgment to get the tree out of the creek when the law dictates man's every move. And in practice, Phillips call for the restoration of the all-important element of human judgment in law would give government employees the freedom to treat one case before them differently than another. And while that makes sense on the one hand, because different cases are inherently different, on the other hand, wouldn't that go against the equal application of the laws for all individuals and thereby undermine our foundational belief in the rule of law? Well, first of all, law is a human institution. I mean, the only way law is supposed to reflect social norms of what's fair and reasonable and if you have a detailed rule book, then the people in charge of law, judges and officials, don't have any ability to access social norms. So decisions will be perceived as unfair as well as impractical. So law is a human institution. It's not some sort of abstract software program that always programs in the right answer. And of course, humans make mistakes, including officials, or they get venal or power corrupts, you know, all of the above. So you have to be sensitive to people abusing power. But the way to do that is to have other humans overseeing them. So you don't have to trust a particular person. You have to trust a framework of people, each overseeing each other. And when law actually sets goals and general principles, like, for example, there's a basic principle of law called the reasonable person standard, that you have to drive or act in ways as a reasonable person would and that they don't put other people in danger. And like, well, that doesn't tell you exactly what the answer is, but there's a sort of a general sense that you can't drive down a city street, even if there were a speed limit at 50 miles an hour, or that you have to look in the rearview mirror before you're backing up, uh, things like that. So it's not so hard to have a rule of law where people are required to use their judgment and are accountable for how they do. I had never thought about law that way before. We tend to think of law as this ironclad, unmovable, and therefore just thing. Not something that can and should have the flexibility to reflect the situation and the norms of the society in order to actually be just. You have another great example in the preface about Obama's stimulus package and its attempts to weatherize and increase energy efficiency in some 607,000 homes. Could you tell us this story? Oh, yeah. So, you know, they allocated money as part of the stimulus package to do a number of things to fix infrastructure, including weatherizing all these homes. But, you know, it's a big sum of money. $5 billion to be exact. Well, at the end of a year, how many they'd done? They'd done like 12 homes or something? I mean, it was just so much paperwork that no one could get started and do anything. So there's this law signed into law by Herbert Hoover, <laughs> one of the many problems of our system of democracy is that Congress never goes out and cleans out obsolete laws. So here's this law called Davis-Bacon, and it requires that on any contract involving federal funding, 
the contractor must pay the, quote, prevailing wage. Now, that's a euphemism. What it means is you have to hire union labor. And when it was originally enacted, it was intended to keep minority contractors from getting jobs and undercutting the regular contractors because minorities weren't members of unions back in the 1930s. So it had a kind of a racist component at the beginning. Now it's just a pro-union thing. And so the, it isn't just a general principle. It actually requires – there's this whole – you know, it's probably a floor of bureaucrats in Washington who do nothing but – in scores of categories, literally set the precise wages to the penny for everything. For terrazzo setters in Monmouth County, New Jersey, they get $68.14 per hour plus another $56 in benefits. The set is a matter of law. I mean, it's unbelievable. So each of 3,000 counties. So if you want to go weatherproof a home, first, all these bureaucrats have to go through every county in California, because there wasn't a category for weatherproofers, and make up a wage number for them. It's, it's like out of a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta or something. I mean, it's, it's like a parody of government. Philip, do these guys literally have to call like contractors in these counties and say, hey, what are you guys... Uh charging here and then call contractor number two what are you guys charging no it's even worse than that because they don't actually care what they're charging they go to the union leaders and they and they try to basically find what's the highest anyone's paid for this category and then the federal law requires the contractor to pay the highest wage that, that has then been set yeah, imagine the private sector operating like that. What's the highest amount I could be charged for something I need? And let's go with it. If this was the case, we'd be all paying a lot more for everything we buy. But because government operates on our taxpayer dollars and the cost of this craziness is spread out among all of us, no one cares. And there you have it, our first part in a multi-part series, the book... The Rule of Nobody, Saving America from Dead Laws and Broken Government. The author, Philip Howard, and we'll have many more installments here on our Best of the Book series, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and today we bring you a story our field correspondent Faith picked up while she was back home in California. And here is the first part of that piece. Kathleen Broder grew up in Los Angeles, California, and has lived in California her whole life. She is a 69-year-old retired grade school teacher and has had five children of her own. But Kathleen... She's not your ordinary retiree. She spends most of her time training for and participating in triathlons. A triathlon is a multiple stage competition most commonly involving swimming, cycling, and running. She races in about seven triathlons a year and runs about, you know, only one or two marathons as well. And at this point, Kathleen has participated in over 50 triathlons. 
Her obsession? Well, it began with running. Yeah, I was always very hyperactive. You know, it's Kathleen, slow down. Kathleen, don't touch that. I was very hyperactive and so forth. And so um, when I was a young adult, I got into, or before that, uh, before college, I got into running. My first marathon, I was I think I was 28. And I really liked that. And then, you know, so I was running all the time. But then we got married, and I think I was 34 when I had my first baby. And when I got pregnant, you know, some women run through all their pregnancies and everything. I just dropped dead. I mean, I was so exhausted. Um, after a while, you know, when the kids were a little older, I, I got back into it. And then um, I started, um, I think, really getting back into marathons about 10 or 15 years ago. And I started really enjoying it again. And it was actually through running that she met her husband, Mike. We met, in, we were in the Santa Monica Track Club. We were just running buddies for a couple years, and then one day Mike said something about, oh, well, well, it's just about time to settle down, and said, yeah, me too. Okay, we got married the next month. I mean, we never really dated. We were just friends, and then we got married. (laughs) We had met, and then we really didn't spend much time together, and then we started going to, we would go to races, and we would drive together and so forth, but... You know, it was never a dating relationship. It just turned, you know, the relationship changed really fast. And then we got married, we had kids, we had, so two years later we had our first and then we had another one and then we had another one and we just kept having them. So, okay, this is weird. I had listened to this tape thing, cassette tape thing of um, mining your diamonds in your own acre. <laughs> So it's really funny, you know, like stop looking all over the place, just look around your own area. And I think that kind of tweaked me a little bit. So, yeah, and we were always got along. We both liked classical music and we had a lot of the same friends. And, you know, we were just a gang of single people, adults that we just hung out together. And then all of a sudden, and we lived only a couple blocks from each other. So... You know, sometimes we'd run together, but mostly we'd run together in the track club. You know, and then all of a sudden, we just settled down and got married. So it was running that brought them together. Who needs dating websites when you have running clubs? Most people know that constant running can take quite the toll on your body. And most people Kathleen's age, well, their body starts to give out on them. Knee problems, hip problems, and so on and so forth. In order to avoid those issues, Kathleen started to take some precautionary steps, which is how her interest in triathlons got started. I started realizing that a lot of my friends, you know, their knees started going and they started complaining and I had fewer and fewer running friends. I thought, oh, that's me. I better cross train. I started swimming a little bit and biking. I already had a bike, but I was biking a little bit, not too much. And then my son and I were up in Carpinteria and we were camping, and this was about eight or nine years ago, and we saw this thing called, I had never seen a triathlon, and I couldn't believe it. I I saw it, and I said, I'm gonna do that. And I I was talking to all the people, well, what comes first, and why is it in that order? And I was just kept, was fascinated. And so um, I immediately signed up for swim lessons. I mean, I knew how to swim, but you know, real, real swimming. 
I bought a steel bike. I didn't know what kind of bike to buy, but I bought one online. So the next year, I did the Carpinteria Triathlon. I probably was the last one to finish because I had—I didn't even know how to shift the gears on the bike. The swim was so scary, and and then you know the run was fine. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm a tri- triathlete, and I thought that would be it. But something—I just kept—I just enjoyed it so much. So then I joined um, this swim group out at CLU, and they were starting a triathlon club, and so I started working out with them, and of course, and then I had to get a better bike, and it just took over. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't retired yet, but I, school became less and less of a priority. And so I started realizing, I don't really have time to go to work. I have too many workouts, and you know that's why I retired. Besides the fact that Mike kept telling me I was stupid for working because I could make just as much money on my retirement, I thought, and he had already been retired for so long. So I thought, okay. And that was when her triathlon career took off. She began with some shorter races before diving headfirst into the longer ones. I started doing the little sprint triathlons. Those are the short ones. The problem with those is that those depend on mostly on speed and I'm not fast I just have a lot of endurance you know I was I did okay but those were kind of scary because you know things go flying and just have to always keep going so then a couple years after I started I started doing the Olympic ones and I liked that a lot more three years ago I started doing the half Ironman and I really really liked those because I was really competitive that's when I got really competitive A half Ironman triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and a 13.1-mile run. And this year, Kathleen qualified for the world championship for the half Ironman. The last several years, this race has taken place far away, such as Austria and Australia. This year, she will be running in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There are a number of other races that Kathleen has ran as well such as some popular ones, like the Boston Marathon. Kathleen has ran the Boston Marathon three times. She will be running it again this year, beating her qualifying time by 24 minutes. How could she do that? What's this woman's training philosophy? A slow, steady pace with a lower heart rate allows an endurance athlete to train longer and more often without stress or injury. Obviously, Kathleen is not your typical triathlete. But what does a typical training week look like for her? I'm getting tired even thinking about it. Does this woman take any rest days? I really listen to my body, and I can tell, like I did a a century, uh, a 100-mile bike ride on Saturday. And it was very hilly and solving. And um, I could tell, so I was supposed to, in my brain... I was going to run on Sunday, and I didn't. And on Monday, I have two groups that I swim with, two different ones, one in the morning at 6 and one at um, 7 o'clock at night. And I was supposed to run in the middle of the day, and I didn't because I could tell I was worn down. So I did a bike ride today, but it wasn't, it was like 30 miles. It wasn't that big a deal, but it was just to, you know, kind of get, get back. The days that I take off, every once in a while, you know, life happens. Somebody gets sick or I get sick or that might be a day that I, that I take off. But 
I don't work it into my schedule. I either, there's something always happening. I usually do two things a day, but um, sometimes, like, um, if it's my long run day, you know, I won't, I probably won't do anything else except run. And when we come back, more from Kathleen Broder, 30-mile bike ride, not a big deal. A big deal for everyone in this studio, that's for sure, me included. Actually, a one-mile bike ride right now in my present condition would be a really big deal. When we come back, more with Faith and Kathleen, a 69-year-old triathlete who's making us all here in the studio look, well, just plain silly. This is Our American Stories, and we continue Faith Garcia's conversation with a 69-year-old triathlete named Kathleen Broder. And by the way, what's so fascinating about this lady is she had never heard of a triathlon. And then when she heard what it was, which is a mile-plus swimming, a long, long bike ride, and a very long run, she thought, hey, let me give that a shot. Let's continue with their conversation. So you work out like two or three times a day? Sometimes? Yeah, I'm not allowed. I don't let myself work out three times a day. <laughs> you don't let yourself? I don't, no, I, well, the only time I do that is on Thursdays because I swim at um, six in the morning and then I meet my friend at, at afterwards at 7.30 at the park and we usually ride down to Zuma and back. But she has a coach that makes her run after her bike. And so sometimes in support, I will... Um, <laughs> I will um, run with her afterwards. And the hard part about that is that on Wednesdays, I swim at lunch, and then Wednesday nights, I have track. And then Thursday morning, I have swim, and then I bike with her, and then sometimes I run. So I am, Thursdays are a really hard day. Now that all adds up to about 18 to 20 hours a week. Basically a part-time job. Of course, with that kind of exercise, she needs to refuel herself. And during the races, you will catch her downing those awful goo packets. But her signature snack are those tiny little peanut butter crackers that she munches on during the biking part of her races. And of course, when she's not racing, she gets hungry too. Obviously, if you work out two or three times a day, I eat like, constantly. Are you always hungry? Um, I am and I really try. I really try to catch it before I get starving, or else I'll eat something, you know, like Carl's Jr. or something. I try to always, you know, to have stuff. I pretty much eat anything, and most of my friends are real, you know, vegan maniac people. You know, some people eat only raw foods, and some, you know, they have all kinds of these crazy things. But I don't do any of that because it's not like I'm training for the Olympics or something. I eat a lot, but for when I'm working. If I'm coming up on a race, a couple days before, I start eating a lot more simple carbohydrates because you want to, you don't want a lot of that, of the stuff in your system. You know, you want it to kind of get through. And so I'll eat more like, you know, white rice and I won't eat any fresh vegetables. I won't eat um, any heavy meats or anything like that. And especially the night before. And then in the morning I have, you know, I have the banana and oatmeal, and 
I usually eat on the way to the race and, you know, there's just certain things that you do. For anyone who runs races or competes in triathlons, they know that bodily functions, well, they can make the race a little more uncomfortable than it already is. The last really stupid thing I did was, um, it was at the Oceanside 70.3 last year. And the wait to get into the water was so long. And I had a water bottle with me, because sometimes, you know, you get in that ocean water, you get very thirsty and you can't drink anything and you're in there for a long time. So I, was, so I had a water bottle. I drank a whole water bottle while standing in line. And then I was swimming, but you can't, unless you stop and relax, you can't be. <laughs> and so I was in such pain because I didn't want to stop because I had all these people behind me. And, um, and it, I, just, I, I just died. So, you know, eventually I got out and I was okay, but... Um, because you had was, to pee. Yeah, it was... Because you can't really... You can't swim at the same time. I mean, because you're not relaxed if you're swimming. And so, you know, just to tread water and people swim over your head. And so <laughs> that was really awful. That was the worst thing. Kathleen, she works out with all different types of groups. Of course, there are very few people her own age in these groups. She is often much faster than people 30 years younger than her because her running endurance is so high. Typically, she said her swim is her worst event. Her biking is good, but then she really catches people on that run. And at 69 years old, going on 70, she puts young guys in their 20s to shame. It's funny because even my swim coach would say, he'll point to me and say, see, though, I mean, she's a real athlete. You know, he's always saying these things about me. It's so embarrassing. But, you know, I really don't think about it and I don't really compare myself. And the and I do know other people who are, you know, my age and much faster, but I do know there's not very many of them, you know, and there aren't, and the older I get, you know, like I'm going into this 70 to 74, that's the age category for triathlons that I'm in now. A lot of times, like this weekend, I'm doing a try, and I'm the only person in my age category. So it's like kind of relaxing. It's like, all right, this is great. But, you know, I still want to do well. Yeah, I don't know. I really can't wrap my head around that because I think because I work out with so many people who are younger, I just enjoy, I enjoy that. I have a hard time being around people my own age. I like being around kids, people my kids' age, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that's who, I, that's who I'm with. I really enjoy, and I think, I think, I think they're, I'm like them, but when they're looking at me, they're looking at their grandmother. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty funny, but I just enjoy that. And the older people that do, I do work out with, I mean, a lot of them are in their 60s, you know, there are some, we're all kind of the same, you know, we all enjoy being with all ages and, and um, you know, we're pretty much, you know, we do the same kind of stuff. There are some who are very, very competitive and, you know, it's like killer and, you know, and then they take it a lot more seriously. But I think a lot of us, most of us have been very active our whole lives, you know, either marathoners or something, you know, you don't come into something like an endurance, um, you know, kind of a, an activity out of, out of the blue, you know, you've done something for several years or it's a personality type. I think it's per a lot of its personality. When I'm out there, it's like, you know, sometimes I'm kind of amazed that I'm out there too and that these people, you know, like I'm passing this guy that's 24 years old. 
especially on the bike. I mean, seriously, this last weekend when we did this century in solving, it was it was hilly. It wasn't horrible. There were so many guys carry or just walking their bikes up these hills, and I mean, I was in my you know my easiest gear, but I'm like. Mm-hmm. You know, good morning, good morning. I'm still going in there. I'm passing them up and all this. But what they do, guys, they power through at the beginning, not realizing you can't do that when you're running, you know, riding 100 miles. <laughs> so that's how you beat out a lot of the guys is by Well, they're stupid. Yeah, yeah, they're stupid. Yeah, and a lot of them are heavy. Some You can't always tell because some of these heavy people are, are very strong, especially in swim, my gosh. Huge people that are so fast in the water. But bike on a hill and you're heavy, gotta work a lot harder. And then the run, too, so. But of course, not every experience has been great for Kathleen. She has fallen off her bike and gotten a concussion. She has broken her collarbone, gotten plantar fasciitis, and even tripped while running and broken her hand. As you can tell, Kathleen, though, she's a pretty intense person. And it is hard for her to stop. She once told me a story about a race she finished where it was so cold she had hypothermia. But she was so out of her head that she just kept on going. Talk about endurance. Kathleen Broder at 69 years old is definitely an anomaly. But of course, she will not always be able to be this active. But for now, she's just incredibly grateful and enjoys what she is able to do. I would never just sit still. I would always be doing, you know, some kind of an activity. It doesn't have to be an athletic thing because I do. I love to play cards. I love to play board games, so I can do that. But I would just want to have nice people, active people, not not real old people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because I, I consider myself so lucky to be able to do all this. And one of my friends the other day said um, that I work out, my training partner said, that she never goes on Facebook because it makes her feel bad because she sees all this stuff that other people are doing that she's not doing. And I started thinking about that and thinking, I just feel so fortunate because um, I think, you know, I worked a long time and, you know, I loved my job, but, you know, I enjoy so much what I'm doing now. And I have my bike group groups and I have my triathlon groups, and I have my swim groups, and I have my running groups, and there's a totally different people in all of them. There's some crossover, but not a lot. So I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of people to hang out with and stuff. Yeah, and you're fortunate because like to have your body in such good like yeah. condition that it's not you know breaking down on you. Yeah, and you know what? If it does break down, I'm ready. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can do, I can do other things. I mean, you know, if I broke my leg. You know, I've had to come back from injuries and stuff, so I don't think it wouldn't be the end of the world. I would, I would just do something else. But you know, I enjoy that. That's why I'm, I feel fortunate now. So this is just something you like doing for it's now. Just, yeah. And what a great piece! Thanks so much for that faith. And Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old triathlete. I just wrote a few notes down. I love that she said, "I have a hard time being around people my own age." Well, I'd have a hard time around being around you. Kathleen, you'd exhaust me. She said she eats constantly. Well, we eat constantly here at Our American Stories, too. We just never even move our bodies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old lady who decided 
well, I'm going to do this thing called the triathlon. And by the way, a triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, then a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. Give that a shot on your day off. This is Our American Stories. our American stories. We wanted to bring you the story of a guy you know, but don't know as well as you're about to get to know him. And his name is Tony Dungy. And if you're a football fan, and even if you're not, you know that he was the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl when his Colts defeated the Chicago Bears in 2007 in the Super Bowl. By the way, those were two African-American coaches and also two good Christian men. And Lovey Smith was the other coach. And Well, he gave a Hall of Fame speech because he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Tony Dungy, in 2016. And we love to bring you talks and speeches that reveal the character and nature of folks. We did it with John Glenn uh, when when he was buried. We went back into the archives to some of the speeches he had given at the Smithsonian to bring his voice to life so you could hear from him. And you're about to hear Coach Tony Dungy talking about his life in this speech. And it starts by Coach remembering his parents. When I got the news, my first thoughts were of all the people God placed in my path to help make this possible. It started in Jackson, Michigan, and I couldn't have had a better upbringing. I'm just sorry that my parents, Wilbur and Cleo Mae Dungy, aren't alive to see this, because they would be so proud. My dad always preached to us to set our goals high and to not complain about negative circumstances. Just look for a way to make things better. My mom taught us that as a Christian, your character, your integrity, and how you honored God were so much more important than your job title. One of her favorite Bible verses was Matthew 16, 26. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I know that she's happy to know that her son never forgot that verse. Wilbur and Clee May. Wilbur and Clee May, the parents. First thing Tony Dungy thanks. And then he thanked his coaches. Had a lot of excellent coaches growing up in all sports, but I really have to thank my high school football coach, Dave Driscoll. I came to him as a 14-year-old who felt like I knew it all. And Coach Driscoll helped me become a good player, but more than that, he helped me become a leader. He taught me how to think the game. Woody Woodenhofer and Tom Moore were the coaches who recruited me to the University of Minnesota, and I thank them for impacting my life. Woody would end up coaching me with the Steelers. And Tom Moore, you heard Marvin talk about Tom. Well, Tom rode with me on the very first plane ride I ever took 
my recruiting trip to Minnesota when I was scared to get on the plane. He was my quarterback coach as a freshman, and then 33 years later, he was our offensive coordinator in Super Bowl 41 with the Colts, and he's still coaching now, and I owe him a lot. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Woody. And a big thank you to our head coach of the Gophers, Cal Stoll, who told us as freshmen that he expected us to be uncommon, not just average. And that thought has stuck with me throughout my life. And it's a great thought to be uncommon and not average. After some great formative years, Tony Dungy's career, his life, hit a speed bump. Well, after four years of playing quarterback at Minnesota, I expected to continue doing that in the NFL, but it didn't happen. In 1977, even though the draft was 12 rounds long then, I didn't get picked, and I was devastated. But it just is one example of God's plans being better than our plans. Woody and Tom were now in Pittsburgh coaching, and they convinced Chuck Knoll to give a guy who'd never played any position but quarterback a shot at another position. I have to say that $2,000 signing bonus I got didn't last long, but I ended up gaining a lot more than money. Chuck Knoll would play a huge, huge role in my life and teach me so much about the game of football. But in our first meeting, he said that even though we were now professionals and we're being paid to play the game, we shouldn't make it our life. There was more to life than just football, and he wanted to help us find our life's work. Coach Knoll, Art Rooney Sr., and Dan Rooney lived that out every day in the way they led the Steeler organization. Dungy talks about how one man in particular stood out in the Steelers organization. There were so many great players on that team. A lot of them up here right now as I speak today, and they all had an impact on me, but none of them more so than Donnie Schell. Donnie took me under his wing, and I learned so much from him, not just about playing safety, but about being a Christian athlete, a husband and father, and a teammate. Thank you, Donnie. And then Dungy remembers many setbacks and opportunities on and off the field. After getting a Super Bowl ring my second year, I experienced another disappointment, getting traded. But again, the Lord was using disappointment to help me grow. With the San Francisco 49ers, I got to play for Bill Walsh and see another system. And Eddie DeBarlo was instilling the same principles in his team that I'd seen with the Steelers, doing everything in a first-class and family way. My playing career only lasted one more year, and suddenly, at 25 years old, I was looking for a real job. That's when Coach Noel called me and gave me that chance to start my life's work. Coming back to Pittsburgh was the beginning of my coaching journey, but there was another blessing in store for me, meeting my beautiful wife, Lauren, the love of my life, my biggest supporter, and my greatest blessing. And when we come back, it's almost a biography listening to this speech, and that's why we love to play him. In his words, and you hear him referring to his, his Lord, and when we do and when we can, we focus on people's faith. And when it's not there, that's fine too, but we don't leave it out when it is there. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Tony Dungy's Hall of Fame speech. A day in the life, a glimpse into the man who was the first African-American to ever win a Super Bowl. More on Tony Dungy from Tony Dungy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The first wave of children came soon after we got married. Tierra, Jamie, and Eric's lives were typical of assistant coaches' kids. Moving every few years, leaving friends, making new friends, and they did it without complaining. Now our second wave of kids, Jordan, Jade, Justin, Jason, Jalen, Jaden, and Jayla, well they had a little more stability. Jordan and Jade were able to experience some of the perks of being the head coach's kids. But they also had their disappointments, like when Dad couldn't come to a birthday party or a school performance. But all ten of them know I love them, and I hope they know how much I appreciate their sacrifices. And that's Tony Dungy talking about his family. He had spoken about his bride before we uh, left you off in the last segment. And now we continue with this great speech by Tony Dungy. He was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And periodically, we love to take you back to old speeches, old essays, old movies, because if you didn't bump into it, it's not old. And this reveals so much of Tony Dungy's character in this Hall of Fame speech. Here, he recalls some of the steps along the path to becoming a head coach. Well, getting to that head coaching job was a long journey from Pittsburgh to Kansas City to Minnesota. 15 great years and a lot of wonderful people. But I have to thank two people in particular. During my four years with the Vikings, Tom Lanphier, our chaplain, met with me weekly going through the book of Nehemiah to give me a picture of biblical leadership that I would use to guide my teams. Thank you, Tom. And Denny Green, Denny went out of his way to teach me the responsibilities of being a head coach. Taught me about things on and off the field. He did it because he wanted to see me become a head coach. And he wanted me to be prepared and be ready when that opportunity came. And I love him for that. But as much as I appreciate that, The thing I'm most grateful to Denny for is that he made sure his assistant coaches had quality time with our families. He let my boys come to camp and be around their dad. He made sure we were able to be husbands and fathers as well as coaches. And just as Coach Noel had done, Denny showed me that you could win doing it that way. 
I thanked him many, many, many times over the years, but I really wish I could thank him one more time tonight for everything he did to help me take that final step. And who your mentors are matters, folks. And if you're lucky enough to stumble upon the right ones, they can change your whole life, your whole worldview. Tony Junji was lucky to stumble into Denny Green, but he also picked that chaplain. So some by design, some by chance. But they shaped this man deeply. Here's Dungy finally talking about getting the gig he'd always dreamed of. And that step came in 1996 when I got the job I thought I'd never get, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I thank Rich McKay, who headed up the search, and Brian Joel and Ed Glazer for their confidence in me. And I'm especially grateful to Malcolm Glazer, who was so supportive and so loving and gave me so much practical advice. Our family enjoyed a phenomenal six years in Tampa. 1997 was probably my favorite year in coaching. We made the playoffs for the first time in 15 years, and the Bucks fans went crazy over their team. And those fans still remain special to me to this day. Dungee remembers another big setback, another big opportunity. Losing my job in 2002 after a playoff loss was another painful disappointment. But again, God used it to lead me to a blessing. That's when Jim Irsay called and gave me the opportunity to join him and Bill Polin in Indianapolis. Like Rich McKay, Bill had an exceptional eye for talent, and he built a tremendous football team. We had a lot of fun over the next seven years, highlighted by that Super Bowl 41 victory. But I'll tell you, the most satisfying part was doing what Jim talked about in that first phone conversation, connecting with our community and making the Colts an integral part of the Indianapolis landscape. I'd like to thank you big time, Jim and Bill, and the Coles fans. You made us feel like native Hoosiers, and our family loves you. And Dungee then went on to thank many other people, the assistant coaches, the staff, the players, and one player in particular, Peyton Manning. But the biggest reason I'm here tonight is the people I was able to work with during my 13 years as a head coach. I had fantastic assistant coaches in Tampa and Indianapolis, and some awesome staff people. I wish I had time to recognize them individually because they were the big reason why we were successful. You don't win in the NFL without players, and was I ever blessed with players. Again, I'm not going to recognize them all individually, but so many of them are here tonight, and I'm going to ask them to stand while I talk about them. There's a bunch up here on this podium I'd like to stand, guys who played for me. There's some in my section. They're in Marvin's section. If you played for me, I'd love for you to stand up so I could recognize you. As you see, several of them are in the Hall of Fame already. Others are certainly going to follow them. And there's no doubt These guys are responsible for me being up here today. I thank you guys. I love you, every one of you. Thank you.
And some guys pretend to not take the credit, and other guys don't want the credit. And you can tell, if you were watching that, that Dun Dungee, well, he didn't like taking credit for any of this stuff. Last but not least, Dungee had to turn his attention to the trailblazers, the African-American men in this sport who paved the way for him to be, again, the very first African-American to coach an NFL Super Bowl winner. And finally, I'd like to say a special thank you to 10 men. Willie Brown, Buck Buchanan, Ernell Durden, Bob Ledbetter, Elijah Pitts, Jimmy Ray, Johnny Rowland, Al Tabor, Lionel Taylor, and Alan Webb. Now, those names might not be familiar to you, but those were the African-American assistant coaches in the NFL in 1977, my first year in the league. It was a small group of men, just 10 of them, if you can believe that, 10 African-American assistant coaches in the entire NFL. Many of them never got the chance to move up the coaching ladder like I did, but they were so important to the progress of this league. Those men were like my dad. They didn't complain about the lack of opportunities. They found ways to make the situation better. They were role models and mentors for me and my generation of young African-American players like Ray Rhodes, Terry Rubisky, and Herm Edwards. We were in the 80s trying to decide whether we could make coaching a career or not. Without those 10 coaches laying the groundwork, the league would not have the 200-plus minority assistant coaches it has today. And we would not have had Lovey Smith and Tony Dungy coaching against each other in Super Bowl 41. So tonight, as I join Fritz Pollard as the second African-American coach in the Hall of Fame, I feel like I'm representing those 10 men and all the African-American coaches who came before me and paved the way. And I thank them very, very much. And there you have it, Tony Dungy's speech. We're going to play this last clip now. Here is how he closed things out in The Lord has truly led me on a wonderful journey through 31 years in the NFL, through some temporary disappointments to some incredible joys. I cherish every single relationship that I was able to make over those 31 years, and I'll always be grateful to the National Football League for giving me my life's work. Thank you, and God bless. Don't complain. Make the situation better. His mom and dad told that to him. These 10 great African-American assistant coaches, and again, there were only 10 when he came into the league. There are now 200-plus. America still trying and working hard to overcome its original sin, and working hard it is. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
Habib and this is Our American Stories. And periodically we love to just hear from really smart people. They're not famous. You've never heard of them before. But they can talk. And they can talk about anything. We all had that teacher that the guy could have taught or gal could have taught anything. And you would have taken it and it would have been interesting. And a while back we had on Stephen Goldberg to talk about something or another. We don't remember what. But he went on this tear and it, la- and it went on and on. And usually you're the host. You want to interrupt. You want to say something. But he just kept going. Yeah, you asked him one question, and 12 minutes later, the segment was over, and he hadn't even taken a breath yet. Not a he breath. He just talked. But it wasn't boring. No. Not only wasn't it boring, we were wondering, how does he keep making it more interesting, <laughs> yeah. and why do we want to interrupt? And darn, I can't believe we have to go to a commercial. Yeah. And so we're calling this segment Musings. And right now it's with Stephen Goldberg, but it could be with anybody. And by the way, Stephen Goldberg, now retired, was chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York, for 20 years. His books include Fads and Fallacies in the Social Sciences, When Wishes Replace Thought, and The Inevitability of Patriarchy, which I think is what we originally had him on for, some musings about that. And his work has appeared everywhere. Psychiatry, Yale Review, National Review, Saturday Review, Every Review. Let's take a listen to Stephen Goldberg's musings. So it's 1956 and I'm 14 years old. I'm on this bicycle trip from Calgary, Canada to Yellowstone Park, Wyoming. There are 12 guys and a leader, an ex-Marine named Grockdorf. Now I'm pretty good at bike riding, which is a good thing, because it's a lot of miles from Calgary to Yellowstone. But what I'm not good at, and what I never expected to do, was having to ride a horse. (laughs) We would stop at a ranch, a real ranch, not what you call a a dude ranch. And uh, we would be required to ride a horse. A horse! I know what you're thinking. What's a Jewish kid from New York doing riding a horse? Who ever heard of such a thing? The time comes when they're giving out the horses. In front of me is a guy, Jimmy, who is more than a bit of a wise guy. And he says to the cowboy who's giving the horses out, he'd like a frisky steed. (laughs) Now, cowboys don't tend to show a lot of emotion on their faces, but they can't keep their feelings out of their eyes. And I could see the eyes of this cowboy. And he was thinking, oh, he wants a frisky steed, does he? Bring out Dr. Death. (laughs) So now it's my turn to be given a horse. Uh, Naturally, I request an old lady horse, preferably one with advanced arthritis. I couldn't have been more pleased. They bring me this spinster horse named Lucky. The cowboy realized I needed all the help I could get. Lucky must have been 80 years old. 80 years in people years, not horse years. We start riding, and it soon becomes clear that my horse was a sort of reverse camel. Where a camel's back goes up in the air, my horse's tummy went down and rubbed against the ground. 
my legs were like, you know, the things on children's bikes. I think they're called training wheels. Every step Lucky took, my heels dug into the ground. So the many-hour ride went okay. Thank goodness we didn't gallop. And we settled down at night and got into our sleeping bags for a well-deserved night's rest. But I noticed something. Grockdorf, the leader, just let the horses hang out. Now, I had seen enough Western movies to know that when a cowboy goes into a bar for a mug of sarsaparilla, um, he uh, ties his horse to a hitching post. That was, I correctly assume, to keep the horse from running away. I guess Grockdorf never heard of this um, and never saw the movies. So come morning, there was not a horse to be seen. Three hours later, two very angry-looking cowboys rode uh, within view, leading a pack of 13 horses. It was incidentally at this time that I first thought of a question that I have not found an answer for in the 60 years that have passed since. Perhaps that's because it might uh, take a rancher to answer the question. And as your listeners probably know, we don't have many ranches in New York City. I mean, the buildings are about 20 feet apart. What kind of ranch could you have? Maybe one big enough for a single cow. Anyway, perhaps one of your listeners could answer the question, and, and here it is. This is the question. Say there are two cowboys out on a ranch, like the ones I've heard of they have in Texas. In the far, far distance, there is a horse. It's almost out of sight for the cowboys, uh, so far away that they can tell it's a horse, but not whether it's a gentleman horse or a lady horse. One of the cowboys turns to the other and says, hey, look over there, there's a horse. No problem, because the cowboy doesn't have to know the sex of the horse. The word horse covers both sexes. It's just a horse. Now, here's where things get tricky. Let's say a cow or a bull is in the distance instead of a horse. The cowboys can tell it's a cow, not a horse. The lower center of gravity is observable, um, even at the great distance. But horns and udders are much too small to be seen at that distance. One cowboy turns to the other and says, Hey, look over there. There's a... What? What is the cow-bull sexless equivalent of a horse? I wrote to the Department of Agriculture asking my question. The department wrote back uh, in a three-page, tightly-typed letter giving me an entire taxonomy of the cow-bull. I didn't know whether to applaud the department for its uh, fine work or write a letter of criticism for their wasting our tax money, expending time, and energy on a dumb question like mine. Anyway, the Department of Agriculture gave me an answer. You call the uh, sex-free word for uh, cow-bull, equivalent to horse-for-horse, a bostorus. Bostorus. (laughs) Well, maybe. It's really hard to believe that a cowboy would turn to his partner and say, hey, look over there, there's a Bostorus. <laughs> See, when I was a kid, I saw movies with great cowboys. Your listeners mostly have probably never heard of because they're too young. 
But these were great. There was Bob Steele, Lash LaRue, Whip Wilson. I mean, these guys were tough. There were no singing cowboys, if you get my drift. Bob, Lash, and Whip wouldn't be called dead saying Bas Taurus. So what would they say? I found one Google source that said there's no sexless word for cow or bull. There's no equivalent to the word horse. But people have been ranching for 5,000 years, and it's it's difficult to believe that they haven't found a need for such a word. So what could the cowboys say? Well, perhaps they could say that cow means both male and female, as we have, at least traditionally, used man not just for males, but male and female. But I've never heard of this and doubt that the cowboys had either. So, what is the sexless word for the cow bull, the equivalent of the word horse? Sixty years later, and I still don't know. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, and thank you, Stephen Goldberg, <laughs> Bustorus. Wow. Bustorus. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's Stephen Goldberg. That's our musing segment. And we just love hearing from really great storytellers. And it does not get better than that. Stephen Goldberg, retired chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we recently came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a company that will cast the ashes of a cremated friend, family member, or even your pet into a cement structure that is then placed at the bottom of the ocean as an eco-friendly memorial that helps to support healthy marine animal life. Let's just say it's an alternative to the traditional grave sites that we all know. Well, we read this, we were sort of laughing at one point and deeply curious at other points, and anytime there's a story like this, we've got to send our intrepid executive producer, Jesse Edwards, out to meet the story where the story hits the road, and that is with the CEO of the company that provides this service. With us on the line is George Frankel, and he's the CEO of Eternal Reefs. So tell us exactly what Eternal Reefs are for some of our audience that might not know exactly what you guys are doing. Eternal Reefs is a cremation memorial where we work hand-in-hand with the families to create a designed reef system called a reef ball that includes the mixing of their loved ones' cremated remains into the actual structure. These reefs have a plaque on them identifying the individual who's being memorialized, and we place these reefs as part of uh, a reef building program in each of the individual states or counties that we work in. Everything that we do is permitted through a variety of federal and state and local agencies. How did you guys come up with this idea? Who, who started it and where did this develop? Well, there's, there's a longer story to that, and that is that originally it was a group of divers from the University of Georgia who were diving down in the Florida Keys on a regular basis and could literally see the degradation of the, of the, of the reef systems from one trip to the next. 
And uh, I suspect one night over a little bit too much beer, they all got together and decided they wanted to do something about it. So they developed an artificial reef system called a reef ball. And if you can envision a huge wiffle ball that's been cut in half, it's round, it's hollow, and it's vented. Um, this became the design. There were two major considerations. The first one was whatever they designed had to be stable in the marine environment because if it wouldn't stay there, it wasn't going to do as good. And the second part had to be, the question really was, if I were Mother Nature, what type of material would I like to work with? So they developed a reef ball. The reef ball has 80% of its weight in the lower, in the lower 40% of the ball itself, so it's very stable. It is made of marine-grade pH-neutral concrete, so Mother Nature doesn't have to do anything to prepare the surface to create new reef systems. When one of the founders of the um, reef ball design's father-in-law got sick, he was a musician, and he came to Don Brawley and said that, uh, look, I'd much rather be in one of your reefs than a field with a bunch of old dead people. And Don committed to making sure that GD's father-in-law would be part of one of these artificial reefs. And Don and I were working together in a different business. And as soon as he mentioned the idea that he needed to be taking some time off to do this, it made perfect sense to me. I was dealing with my own family. My mother's life was winding down. My brother had just been diagnosed as terminal. Uh, our family cemetery plot was filled. So my mind was wide open to the concept of memorialization, and that's really the ground, the, the beginning of where Eternal Reef started from. How do you guys decide where to put the Eternal Reefs at? Everything we do is part of an existing artificial reef program. So we call either the state or the county, depending upon where we're working, the individual who is designated as the artificial reef coordinator for that particular area. Mm -hmm. And we look for locations that are vacation destination locations. So they've got hotels, they've got the infrastructure that we need, large boats, boats that can handle families, boats that can handle the reefs. Because the smallest reef we use is 750 pounds. Mm -hmm. And the reef coordinator will work with us to identify one of their ongoing projects, and that's where we'll place the reefs. That's cool. So to do people, I'm assuming, maybe swim down later years and, and to, to, to go down to visit the reef, is, is that possible? Well, well, we actually have whole families that have learned to scuba dive so they can come out and visit their loved ones. Wow. Um, we periodically check on the reefs ourselves. We'll try to take pictures when we can. Of course, visibility and currents are a big issue. But um, we try to document as much as we can with regards to the reef and how it's progressing as we can. This is also kind of an eco-friendly alternative to traditional burial. Yeah, the answer, of course, is yes. But there's a bigger picture with that as well. And that is that we're starting to see a, a literally a, a sea change towards what we call conservation burial or conservation memorialization. More and more people are opting for what they call green burials, and the, the gold standard, if you will, because there are a lot of shades of green, is where they actually use a piece of land that is being preserved for really ecological purposes, and they turn that into more of a uh, memorial site where they bury the bodies without having caskets, without having embalming, without having vault liners. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're looking to preserve these important pieces of, of land. Well, literally, we refer to ourselves as the surf and turf of the natural burial movement. What they're doing to preserve land is largely what we're doing to preserve the ocean.
whatever grows on it is dependent upon the local water conditions. So, for example, when we work in the Chesapeake Bay, we'll get a lot of shellfish, mussels, and oysters. When we work down in uh, South Florida, we get a lot of corals. But fish will move on to these reefs literally as we place them. They're all looking for new habitat. They're all wanting to be the first one on the block in the new house kind of a thing. And, again, the concrete being pH neutral gives Mother Nature a really great jumping-off point to create an entire new ecosystem. So she'll plant all her little microorganisms. A lot of times we refer to the ocean as a nutrient-rich desert. There are billions of these microorganisms floating around looking for some place to land, burrow in, and start to grow and propagate. So when we put down an eternal reef or a reef ball, all of a sudden there's new material for Mother Nature to work with. So we'll get meaningful growth on these in some cases in as little as six weeks. So you also facilitate the ceremony, the laying of the reefs. Can you walk us through that process? So we start on a Friday where we do the casting. And this is where the families all come. We do these as projects to keep the cost down. And the families will mix the remains into a portion of the reef that we call a pearl. We then put fresh concrete on the top of the reef. And they get to put handprints in it. They get to write messages. They put small mementos like fish hooks or military medals. Uh, we give them uh, glass beads and, and shells so they can decorate the top. And this whole process allows them to take ownership. This now becomes a lot more than my mother or my father's memorial. It becomes a tribute that I made to their lives with my own hands. So these folks are now fully vested in the future of the marine environment, which we think is a great thing. We have the plaque already installed on the reef. And on Saturday, we literally call that the family fun day. The family goes and does whatever it wants in the local community. Our team comes back in. We clean up the reefs. We prepare them for presentation. And on Sunday, we have the viewing, which includes families taking pictures. We give them rubbing wax and paper, and they'll take rubbings of the plaques. We give them children's sidewalk chalk. They can ride all over the reef. They can ride on the inside of the reef. We have small children who will climb inside the reef and ride on the inside. Uh, and, again, if somebody is doing military honors, we make sure their honors are presented at that time. Monday, the fourth day, we'll take the reefs out to the reef side on one boat and the families out on a second boat. Each reef is individually lowered to the ocean floor one at a time, and we announce who it is so the family can pay attention. After all the reefs are placed safely on the bottom, we move our placement boat off-site and put the family boat directly over the reefs. Then we give each of the families an individual opportunity to dedicate the reef to their loved one the way they see fit. Then we, as a term, reefs will dedicate the reef site to everybody that we memorialize that day. We'll circle the reef site, sound the boat's horn, and return to the dock closing the service. One other thing I'd like to add is we get an awful lot of calls about pets. And what we tell people is, look, we're glad to do a memorial for your pet, but we have to charge the same amount uh, as we do for people because we have to meet the same regulatory requirements. Have you thought about holding on to your pet's remains until your time comes? We can put you both together. So now I've got somebody out there who is now talking about their pet and what they're going to be together maybe 50 years down the road. Um, so, the, again, the whole process from start to finish is very positive. It's very therapeutic. We have parents telling us that this is the best way they could have found to introduce a child to a loss because there's no body, there's no open grave, there's no solemn music or dark room. The whole process is more of a, uh, an arts and crafts project than it is a memorialization. That's great. And what are the prices comparable to a traditional uh, burial or cremation? 
Well, they tell me that the current price of a funeral is about $7,000, and that doesn't include the cemetery costs, the land, the headstone, the, the, uh, the vault, the opening and closing of the, um, of, the, of the plot itself. And our prices range from $3,000 to $7,500 for our largest reef. And our largest reef can hold four family members. Uh, they all have to be ready to go at the same time. But from a cost standpoint, we are relatively close to the cost of just what a casket would be, uh, and maybe less than that in most cases. And there you have it. That's Jesse talking to George Frankel, CEO at Eternal Reefs. And find out more at eternalreefs.com. We love stories like this. And, you know, for some people, this is becoming a reality. And we thought it was a little quirky and a little odd at first. But as always, there's more to the story than, than meets the eye or the ear. Again, Lee Habib, Our American Stories. And that was Jesse, as always, doing great work for us here on the show.